oh man, I'll tell you what, what grinds my gears. I was on uh, trying to find something to watch last night, and I was on Amazon Prime. So this one goes out to you, Jeff Bezos. Uh, I was on, he's watching, I know he is, he's a big fan. Um, I go to pull up the show I wanted to watch, and it says, oh, just so you know, um, the plan that you're on is our basic plan. I've been a Prime member since, you know, God knows when, and, you know, it goes up each year or whatever. We all do it. You know, it's like you could make it $500 a day, and we'd still get Prime, right? You've got to get that two-day shipping. And so you're on the basic plan, and so now you're going to have ads uh, in your show. And uh, so it's like a 45-minute show. You're going to have three different ad breaks. Oh, and if you, well, if you want, if you want, you could also pay an extra $2.99 a month, and there's no ads. And all I could think is like, man, Jeff, that's how you're getting to the moon, isn't it? You're just a little $2.99 at a time. We're going to send you on that rocket ship, aren't we? We got to do this for Jeff. Um, I hate that. I, I, I hate all the, all the little nickels and dimes. Everything is a subscription service now. I know it's become kind of, kind of cliche to talk about this, but it's for a reason. I mean, the number one like podcast ad, the ad you're listening to on the podcast is for a product that will help you unsubscribe to things that you don't even know you're subscribed to. That's the insanity that we are living in right now. You got money just falling out your wallet. You don't even know it. It's insane. Um, our culture of commitment has shifted so much, and it's not just about subscription services, although everything, it seems, is a subscription service. Um, it's the way that we commit ourselves to one another. Our commitments around relationships have changed. Our commitments around friendships have changed. Our commitments even in the realm of work has changed. I mean, how many big businesses still have pension plans? And, and that's the reason why employees now go from business to business. Why wouldn't you? Because they're not committed to you, so why should you be committed to them? I mean, we're, we're in a changing season of our culture around commitment. And uh, this Sunday, we are uplifting our vision statement in, as part of this worship series. We're walking through word by word our five C's. And we say that God is calling us to be and to become a 5C church, a creative, constructive, forward-leaning Christian community committed to becoming more like Jesus. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a, a transforming community next week on Transfiguration Sunday. That's how we're going to close this series. But today we're going to talk about that word committed. And I think it's an important word. It's one that we shouldn't miss. You know, every word in our vision statement, I really love. I inherited it, but I love it because uh, they are unique words and they're different words. They, they differentiate us, I think, from other church communities. And, but that word committed in many ways differentiates us, I believe, from our surrounding culture even more as we wrestle with what it means to be a people who are committed. So this Sunday, let's talk about why commitment is an important part of the vision here at AUMC. And to help us in this conversation, we're going to look to uh, the letter that Paul writes to the church uh, or the churches in Galatia, I should say, the, the, the letter to the Galatians. So um, let's talk about who is writing and, and where he's writing and why he's writing. So first is the who. So uh, you may hear the name Paul in church quite a bit. I know it's a new year, a lot of folks back to church for the first time. I always like to uh, never assume that we know uh, what's, what's happening in Scripture. So, so Paul, if you don't know, uh, was one of the early church leaders. Some would say the early Christian movement leader. Uh, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He came into the movement after the fact, after Jesus had died and resurrected. He actually at first was kind of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see in the Gospels, the people who are kind of agitators and agitated uh, by this Christian movement that is growing within the Jewish faith. 
Paul was a guy named Saul, and he was really deeply committed to the, the legalistic nature of his Jewish tradition, and he was extremely upset about this growing Christian movement, and so he would persecute and attack uh, Christians in, in his uh, city of Jerusalem until one day he has this supernatural, super uh, spiritual experience where he encounters the presence of Jesus on a road to a place called Damascus, and his whole life has changed, and he, and he feels called into this movement that he had been trying to snuff out for so long. And, and like Jesus' presence does, his name gets changed from Saul to Paul. Just one letter, not a big change, but, you know, that must have been confusing for his friends to try to get that right. Um, it's like trying to change the year as you're writing the date out every year. Oh, it's 2024 now. Sorry, sorry, Paul. Um, and so Paul joins this Christian movement, and he becomes uh, on fire uh, for not just what it's doing in Jerusalem, but really what it's doing beyond Jerusalem. So he begins to travel throughout the Roman Empire, this Mediterranean land of Turkey and Greece and, and Rome, and, and he's, he's planting churches along the way, and he's ministering to, to little Christian communities along the way. And as he's traveling, he's writing. He's kind of the first church consultant. He's writing these letters to churches who are writing to him, and, and they're experiencing some challenges or some disagreements, or maybe sometimes they're just saying, hey, it's awesome. And he's like, hey, that's awesome awesome, keep it up. But he, he sends these letters to places, and that's where a lot of the letters of the New Testament come from. They come from Paul, who is writing these letters to churches that he's encouraging. So that's the who. The where, the, the, the who he's writing to and where he's writing, it's the church to the, or the letter to the Galatians. And, and Galatia is not a city, so it's not like saying to the Romans or, or something like that. Galatia is more of a region. It's in uh, what we would consider modern day the, the, the highlands of Turkey, right? It's a larger region. So it's like the letter to the Texans or the letter to the Oklahomans, right? Um, I think that's what it is. I don't know. Someone from Oklahoma, correct me. I'm looking at you, Sarah Gibson. Um, anyways, um, she's laughing. I think I got it wrong. So that's fine. Moving on. Uh, letter to the Texans. So this region of churches, these little Christian communities, and, and he cared about this place because he had been nursed back to health by these people. And it's, it's while he was being nursed to health that he shared the gospel with them. And that's how these Christian communities sprung up in Galatia. And the why he's writing, he's left them, obviously. He had to continue on his journey to continue growing the Christian movement. And, but he's heard that they're having some troubles. And the trouble is this, that as soon as he had left, he'd just gotten these communities off the ground. Uh, he leaves, and what comes behind him is some new teachers, some different teachers, teachers that are a lot like he used to be, the folks that are saying, whoa, forget what that guy said. No, if you really want to be God's children, then you have to do these things. And it's all the legalistic laws of the Jewish tradition in those days. So specifically, they talked about circumcision, and they talked about observing the Sabbath practices that they were supposed to traditionally, and then generally just the mosaic, the laws of Moses that they were meant to follow. And the Galatian people are kind of, have you ever worked for or with someone who kind of shares the opinions of whomever they last talked to, right? It's like whoever just spoke to them, they're like, yeah, all of a sudden you're hearing their words come out of their, their mouth. And that's kind of what he's getting from the Galatians. He's like, oh no, they're, they're beginning to sound a lot like these teachers that came in after me. So he writes the letter to the Galatians to try to offer some correction. And so when you read it, there's all this language about work and faith. And the way that our, our faith gets worked out in our lives, because what Paul knows that he's going to share with the Galatians is that 
you're not being called into these legalistic rules that he had left behind and that these teachers are trying to bring in, but you are being called into something substantive, something productive, something faithful, and, and something, quite frankly, that's going to feel like work, um, but it's not the kind of work that maybe you've heard of before. So, with all of that in mind, we're going to read Galatians chapter 6. This comes at the very end of the letter, beginning in verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters... If a person is caught doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves so you won't be tempted to carry each other's burdens and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are important when they aren't, they're fooling themselves. Each person should test their own work and be happy with doing a good job and not compare themselves with others. Each person will have to carry their own load. Those who are taught the word should share all good things with their teacher. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. A person will harvest what they plant. Those who plant only for their own benefit will harvest devastation from their selfishness. But those who plant for the benefit of the Spirit will harvest eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not get tired of doing good. Because in time, we will have a harvest if we don't give up. So then... Let's work for the good of all whenever we have an opportunity, and especially for those in the household of faith. The Word of God among us, the Word of God within us, and the Word of God in Scripture. Let us say, thanks be to God. So, the first question I have as I read this text this week, I'm reading that opening paragraph, that first paragraph. And on the one hand, he says, you got to carry each other's burdens, But then, in just a couple sentences, he says, each person will have to carry their own load. And I'm left wondering, well, well, which is it? Do we have to carry each other's burdens, or do we carry our own load? So backing up into Galatians chapter 5 might help us out a little bit. Context in Scripture can be key. In Galatians 5, Paul is laying out what he calls the fruits of the Spirit, Um, And what he's essentially getting after is that there are these these qualities, these virtues that we will embody as our faith becomes integrated into who we are, as it becomes internalized, as we begin to believe in the person and work of Jesus, then there will naturally be this embodiment of the values and virtues that accompany the gospel message, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, and a couple others I can't remember off the top of my head. I didn't write them down, and I should have. Whoops. Um... One scholar named Crystal Hall, she, she refers to the, the fruits of the Spirit as something like breathing the faith, right? That there's this inward and outward, this breathing in and breathing out, that as we breathe in the good news of Jesus, we will naturally breathe out the fruits of the Spirit. It's meant to be something cyclical. This brings up a, an essential component of Wesleyan theology. In the Methodist Church, we come from the Wesleyan tradition, named after John Wesley, a theologian that lived a few hundred years ago. And And he was a big believer in the concept of holiness, meaning living in right standing with God, living aligned with God's will in the world. But he talked about holiness in these two different ways. He talked about personal holiness, and he talked about social holiness. 
So personal holiness is that way in which we try to guide our own personal lives. And, and, and classically, there are spiritual disciplines we might engage in to, to be about this work. That's prayer and fasting or studying scripture or you insert whatever personal spiritual practices allow you to feel like you are aligned with God's presence in your life, that you are aligned with God's will in your life. And then he says there's this aspect of holiness, though, that doesn't just live quietly squared away in the, in the broom closet of your own personal faith, but it's actually out in the streets. And sometimes it means bringing those practices into public, and it means, you know, being in a prayer group or studying scripture amongst community, but it also means being at work in the life of the community. It's why Methodists historically have been so passionate about public education and public health care and the, the things that we see as the, the fruits of our spirit poured out into the streets of our cities and of our regions. Borrowing from the, the author Parker Palmer, who some of you may be familiar with, and if you're not, you should be. Really good author. Parker Palmer is a spiritual author, and he talks about um, the, 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 the sort of sense of self in, in an idea of a Mobius strip. So imagine, if you will, with me, that you've got a piece of paper, right? And he says, a lot of us will get to life where we have sort of this inner and outer life. There's the inside part of us that lives in here, and then there's the external side, and neither should the two meet. There's this wall that forms of who I am inside and who I present myself for the environment in which I live beyond me. And that can feel like a really whole and a really safe space to live in, right? This is a natural place that we find ourselves. But he says the challenge is for us to adopt something of a Mobius strip where you essentially flip one side and connect it to where if you were to take your finger and trace it along this continuum, it, it, instead of being a closed loop, it becomes a sort of infinite circuit of sorts, if I can do that properly, it becomes an infinite circuit where it never really stops. There's not an inside or an outside. It's all part of the same side. And he says part of the work as individuals is adopting a sense of self and a sense of reality where there is this integration between who we are internally and how we present ourselves to be externally. And I would say that's very Wesleyan of him. It makes sense. He's a Quaker, holiness movement. What's up? Yeah, representing the holiness movement. So um, personal and social holiness is not meant to be this dichotomy where it's like, okay, uh, over here I do my prayer and my fasting and all my good Christian stuff, and over here I do what I want, right? Um, the idea is that uh, there's this integration and that as I become engaged by the Spirit of God in one, then so will my spirit be engaged by God in the other. I think also we mistakenly think that, that one leads only to the other, that it's a one-way one movement. Churches especially are really bad about that. Like, until you come to our Bible study, then you're not going to know how to be a good Christian, right? And it's like, uh, trust me, I, I, I think Bible study is great, but I know that my hands and my feet can teach my heart something about who Jesus is. What do I mean by that? That means that when I, when I was a teenager and I would go on mission trip and I would sweat my keister off in, in, in Ponca City, Oklahoma, shout out, yeah, uh, there we go, yeah, okay, a lot of Ponca fans in the house, that would teach me, quite frankly, a whole lot more about who Jesus was than sitting through maybe a dozen different Sunday school lessons. That's just where I was at that time. And then now there are frequently times where that time of prayer and meditation allows me to show up even better in the world around me because it's being integrated. So there's this internal, external movement between personal and social that, that shouldn't be this sort of divided wall between the two, but are meant to be integrated in a holistic way. 
This is why I think that, that, that um, Paul is trying to, this is what Paul is trying to address, I believe, in this sixth chapter. He's go, going back to this contradiction between we have to carry each other's burdens and we each have to carry our own load. Because one thing I know is that our internal faith and our external faith, they're life-giving to one another, and one cannot sustain without the other, right? We can't just go to Bible study all day and never live it out in the streets, or else it's just going to kind of fizzle and die. And so I think that what Paul is seeing is that when people begin to try to, to live into a burdensome faith, a faith that grinds them down and, and, and turns them into dust, then suddenly they need some help because they've lost that, that continuum loop. They've lost that ability to sustain within themselves. They need community around them to surround them, lift them up, and help them back re-engage in a holistic alignment with God's will not so that we could constantly be codependent on one another, but because there are times that we simply need help. Amen? Amen. Am I the only one that has needed somebody to help lift me out of the dust and remind me that my faith was meant to be life-giving at one point? It was meant to sustain me and not drain me? And so Paul is saying once we allow someone to come back into that continuum, then really the goal is that they should be able to stand on their own two feet because faith was meant to be this sustaining, abundant, life-giving thing. And when it's not, we need help, but that's not the way it was designed. The ultimate goal is that we each have an integrated faith, a Mobius strip kind of faith that is sustainable and life-giving for us and for others as well. And then he goes on to talk about the work that we do and the harvest that we will have. And he talks about the household of faith. And, and as I'm reading this text, I also can't lose sight of the context of the people to whom he's writing, the, especially when we talk about the theme of commitment. So I mentioned Galatia is a region in modern-day Turkey and if you're not aware, this was being written back in the first century CE when the Roman Empire was in its heyday. And they were still expanding and taking over new territories all of the time. Uh, only a couple of decades before Paul is writing these words, the region of Galatia was newly integrated into the Roman Empire. They, they had had their own sort of freestanding king and were left kind of untouched by the Romans until he died. And then once he did, the Roman Empire said, mine now, and they just sort of took it in. And, and they became a province of the Roman Empire. And I think that, that, that Paul understands who he's writing to and the importance of, of addressing the kingdom uh, layer in this text as well. He encourages them to endure in the faith that first led them in, that he first led them in. And he concludes by saying, so then let's work for the good of all whenever we have an opportunity and especially for those in the household of faith. And now it's important to know that letters like this one in those days would have been written by a scribe and dictated by the author, which is likely what Paul has been doing. He's dictating this to a scribe, and he references his assistance in other texts, but this is not the end of the letter. In fact, Paul appears to take the quill from his scribe as he ends the letter and says, look at the large letters I'm making with my own handwriting. That's the next verse in this text. Something about what he has just said has stirred something up within him that he feels the need to take the pen in his own hand and to offer a postscript in all caps. 
So he goes on to write about the general conflict he's having with the teachers who came to Galatia after him, the ones who instructed the Christians that they would need to come under the traditional Jewish codes of circumcision and Sabbath practices and other Mosaic laws in order to truly be saved. And he calls out what he sees as selfish motivation behind these teachers who he believes are only preaching this way so that they can be honored and respected by the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Look how many circumcisions we did, right? That's a weird thing to boast about. When I do that with my bishop, he says, Scott, stop. It's a liability. Um, By contrast... Paul is essentially saying he seeks what is true to the gospel of Jesus first, and secondly, what is a blessing for all the people of Galatia. He's not in it for himself. He's there trying to help them thrive. He has seen the end run of a faith that is promoted by these teachers. He used to be just like them. But there's this backdrop of kingdom They've just been folded up underneath the Roman Empire. And there's a reason why the language of kingdom and empire runs throughout the New Testament. It's not just because, you know, we we think it sounds nice. The reason why the kingdom of God becomes this language that we latch onto as a tradition of faith is because these are people living under what felt like at the time a world-spanning kingdom. The Roman Empire took up everywhere you could ever imagine going in those days. A world with no end, we might even say. And I wonder how long it took for the people like the Galatians to come to know what Jews like Paul had known for generations. Empire ultimately does not care about you. Of course, empires that are sustainable are able to care for people generally as a workforce or an economic asset or a political tool. 2024, what's up? But empires... Empires do not care for individuals. They expect individuals to live in service to the empire, but in return, they offer the least amount of transactional support they can without incurring revolt or collapse. The least amount they can. And so generally, the populace as a whole survives, but individually, people suffer. Do we know that to be true in the year of our Lord 2024? The language of kingdom of God is meant to offer a contrast to the empires of humankind. It's what Paul describes in his text as a new creation. I don't think he's only talking about the new life that Jesus ushers individuals into, but truly the new reality that God invites all of humanity into if we are willing to believe both personally and socially in the faith of Jesus. And and Paul is continuing in the teaching of Jesus that God's kingdom is oriented so much differently than those that we know. It is not designed to extract as much as possible from its people, but rather seeks to bless each individual through a collective commitment to the love of God lived completely. And so there is this question I hear Paul asking in between the lines in his letter to the Galatians, which kingdom is worth our commitment? Which kingdom is worth our commitment? In the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody And you probably can't serve two. So which kingdom is worth our commitment? The one that will grind us into dust? The one that will extract as much value as possible? The one that will give us as little transactional resource as they can while still making sure we can eat, sleep, and breathe and support the empire? Or the one that actually seeks that individuals could have life abundantly? 
And so Paul is desperately trying to help these early Christians to realize that they are able to choose an empire radically different than the one of their birth or the one chosen for them by political authorities. They can instead choose to understand their lives as belonging to a divinely different empire that calls each person equally a child of God, sibling in the household of faith. And so when we talk about the church here at AUMC, when we talk about building the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is trying to live into that new reality, that new creation that is not just meant for me. Like, yeah, me and God are good. The reason why we are here is because we believe that the little e empires of our world are not serving us that well and may never, in fact, But the kingdom of God is something different, something that is boundaryless and borderless. You can't put a wall between the kingdom of God and anywhere else on the earth. Our job is to see that made real, perhaps first here, but then pouring out like the fruits of the Spirit into our streets, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods. The way that we live into the kingdom of God, though, is we we live into it by establishing a covenant of commitment, not legalistic and burdensome in the way that Paul had once understood, but instead one that seeks to promote so that we can lift others up into a continuum of life, perhaps, Or, or maybe so that we can go places beyond our physical walls and help the good news of Jesus be lived out, not just through the words that we say, but through the actions of our hands and feet as well. Practically what that means is we talk about the five-fold covenant of commitment here at AUMC in the following way. We say that people who call AUMC home commit their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, and their witness. If you want to know what we're about, here's a good understanding of what it means to commit here. Being a committed member of AUMC means you commit your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. Prayers. That's the internal work of myself and my soul that I can take with me anywhere I go. Paul says in Thessalonians, I pray without ceasing. And I don't think it's because Paul's mumbling to himself all the time. I think it's because prayer is that thing that he knows can be carried into every space and every place. It's the part of our internal spiritual lives that that truly knows no end. Our life could be a prayer if we let it. And so we believe in offering our prayers. Yeah, praying for one another, pray for your church, pray for the people here, but ultimately live that life that is internalized and made real in each of our own hearts. Presence means something different now than it did maybe five years ago. Hello, folks who are with us online. Being present isn't just about being in the room. You can be in the room and be very unpresent, yeah? If you've ever been around someone who's been in the room with you and they were not present. Presence here means the way that we show up. Authenticity is a radical value here. No one wants you to slap a smile on your face and say, I'm too blessed to be stressed, brother. That's not the kind of place this is. When someone says, how are you really? You're you're meant to give the honest truth. Our presence is about how we show up and the way we engage in this space when we show up, that we bring our full selves, our honest selves, our authentic selves, our vulnerable selves. Our gifts, we're going to talk about later on this morning, but we believe that this does not happen uh, by accident. This requires our, our efforts, both in terms of our time and our talents and our finances, to make sure that the ministries here are, are allowed to be abundant so that when we come across people who are lying in dust, we can help lift them into a continuum of life. And that doesn't happen by mistake. That means that we commit our time, our talents, and our resources. I'll say about that a little bit more about that later in the service today. 
Financial generosity was a key part of the Christian movement because the empire is going to get theirs, right? What about the kingdom of God? Service, not just in service to the church, but service to the world. How we are getting beyond this space and beyond ourselves into places that might even make us uncomfortable because we believe our hands and feet are not the outcomes of our hearts, but rather they are all connected. And maybe by going to read to some students at Dobie Pre-K, you could learn a little bit more about Jesus. Or maybe by going down to Austin Street Shelter, you might understand the good news that Jesus has for the poor and the hungry in a new way. Service. And then witness. This is where I'm going to ask you to go out on the street corner with a sign and tell people they're going to hell. No. Sorry. I always mess that one up. Sorry. Um, no, witness is not about standing on street corners and handing out tracts and, and trying to evangelize in that kind of way. Witness is about the way that we embody this internalized faith in the streets, at the school board meeting, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our full lives, so that when we are encountering others in the world, we might not even have to open our mouths and say a word about Jesus because they're experiencing the love of Jesus through our presence alone. That's what it means to be a witness, to allow the love of Jesus to fully integrate into who you are and how you live, both here and beyond. That's the commitment. Now, that's a lot right? That's a lot. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. But we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about an empire that will not exist on its own, and we know the other ones are failing. And we can't change the world individually, but each of us could come together and change this place. And we could change our communities. And we could start in Galatia and see where it goes from there. And so if you're looking for a place where you sit in the back and you stay quiet and you come and go and it doesn't cost you a thing, you're in the wrong building. You're at the wrong church. You're in the wrong movement. It might, in fact, cost you everything. And that's the best news I have to give you because it's worth it in the end. It's nothing less than the full restoration and renewal of God's beautiful and perfect creation. That's something I'm happy to commit to. May it ever be so. Amen. Amen.